When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, I'm Ollie Dugmore and welcome to Unfiltered. My guest today used to be a footballer. A world-class striker, he won the Golden Boot at the 1986 World Cup. 80 caps for England. Today, he is the longest-serving and most outspoken Match of the Day presenter, the BBC's best-paid presenter, and perhaps a bigger player in the media than he was on the pitch. He says, I was born to be in the box. I learnt how to be on the box, and I'll end up in a box. <laughs> Gary Lineker, how's tricks? It's great that you start with my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, a cheery place yes. to start things off. How are you otherwise? You okay? Yes, all good, thank you. Yes. Good, I'm glad to hear it. Um, we're talking on a Monday, obviously match of the day airs on the Saturday, so a day off today, chilling out, what's, what's your sort of routine like midweek? Well, it varies to be honest. Um, it's kind of unpredictable. Um, some weeks I'm really busy um, doing a variety of things. Other weeks I'll, I'll have fairly free. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to say I go on mini retirements occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but, but I do. I I prefer holidays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the other thing you said about something about <laughs> sleeping or a mini death? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, an interesting one from uh, Gary Neville. Yeah. I mean, it's been five years since you last sat in the unfiltered chair. Is it five years? It has been five years, yeah. Yeah. Um, And James O'Brien's got significantly younger as well. Mm. Um, He said, if there's one thing Gary Lineker is not going to do, it's just stick to football. Mm -hmm. Since then, you've continued to live up to that reputation. You just won an Amnesty Award for speaking up for refugees. Did you ever envision that speaking about politics, humanitarian issues would always be something you'd end up doing? Or is it something you've just kind of found yourself in? Well, I don't think anyone in any field just sticks to their... um, vocation mm. you don't you know just because you you carve a career in football or or journalism or where it, whatever it may be you don't just stick to that subject um and from my experience um of of this critique which i have a lot of it's generally from they're absolutely happy with you saying anything that you want until they disagree with it mm-hmm. and then they say why don't you just stick to football <laughs> um so i've never really taken that seriously yeah. and i don't th- i mean does a plumber just stick to plumbing 
No, no, I, I don't think so. so. I also think when people say I'll keep politics out of sport, it's sort of an ahistorical reading yeah. of, of sport, particularly football in Britain, right? They're intrinsically linked anyway. Yeah. Um, and politics sneaks into everything. Of course it does. So you can't you can't really avoid politics, whether you're in football or any other walk of life, I mm-hmm. think. Absolutely. Um, as with all of our guests on Unfiltered, this is a conversation about how mm. the events of your life made mm. you who you are. So I think it makes sense to begin at the beginning. Um, <laughs> were you... Were you encouraged to speak your mind as a child? Were you in your house? Was it a place where you could have ideas and talk about issues? I was incredibly shy as a child. Really? Um, yeah, I still am in, in certain um, areas, large, large groups of people, things like that. I'm always a little bit you know, small talk. I'm not I'm not very comfortable at that. Um, so no, I was very quiet um, as a child. Just just played sport really. I, in those days, I did want to stick to football. <laughs> Um, but I also had to go to school occasionally, uh-huh. um, which I didn't really enjoy very much. Um, so, and I was pretty shy, um, very tiny. Like I was kind of the, the nerdy-looking kid with the sticky-out ears and the goofy teeth. Um, and if I hadn't been good at um, good at sport, I probably would have been bullied. <laughs> so you played sport at school, obviously. Mm. Uh, you loved cricket as well as football, right? Yeah. How were you? Let's talk about the, the side you probably don't want to talk about as much. The academics. Were you? No, no I was alright. I was okay, alright, but just didn't, just didn't enjoy it. And didn't, uh, didn't like doing, didn't like working at home, homework mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. And I was so kind of devoted and ambitious to be a sports person that that that's the only thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to go and sit in a classroom doing physics and and various other subjects. I I like most people. I enjoyed the subjects I was good at. I, I still to this day think that education gets it kind of wrong. I don't think we try and find out what children are good at and then mm. focus on that. No, we have to do maths. Even if you're really, really useless, you're going to have to do it until you leave school. Now they want to do it until they're 18, yeah. don't they? Oh, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But things like, I was all right at maths, so I was good at maths um, until letters got involved in maths and yeah, then it, the algebra thing. It goes up a level. Never really happens. understood that, but yeah. numbers, I was really good at numbers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But And English I enjoyed, I was, I was good at that. Um, so I was all right yeah. academically. I, um, gonna... I could have done a lot better if I'd, I'd worked harder interested in other things i was mm. going to ask perhaps maybe some performance a bit of public speaking maybe obviously with a view to your later career i mean no nothing like that then. really no too no, shy no. oh yeah way too shy what about writing um i used to write match reports um <laughs> i used to when i used to go and watch i used to go and watch leicester obviously um with my dad and my granddad from the age of around seven and mm. um a little bit older than that when i was probably in my teens i did used to write match reports and I always thought that if I wasn't didn't make it as a footballer then then I'd want to be a, a sports journalist did they get published or is there just sort of a large filing cabinet no no I've no idea where they are in <laughs> fact we had a it's really annoying really because we had a f- flood um in the house in the loft I can't remember why um but we lost all the pictures all the cuttings of everything from like childhood so you know when people say oh you got any pictures of you as a kid Mm. there's like one from the Leicester Mercury the local newspaper that that I find and that's about all that's, that's it. rough isn't it because you know yeah. it's, it's well I wasn't history. a very good looking kid so, so maybe you're actually quite not pleased a great about adult that either, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, slightly abstract question but I think it's a nice way to kind of get a picture of how you conceive your childhood if we were to make a film about your life mm. what do you think the first scene would be where would it start oh, <laughs> I don't know um, I think you'd start with the Golden Boot in 1986. Yeah, sorry, okay. forget everything else before that. Um, I, that's a really good question. Um, I, I I don't know. 
Um, I often, I, when I read um, autobiographies, um, I tend to get really bored about the childhood bit and then skip forward. Yeah. So maybe I won't even bother with it. You won't bother. I, I was, Is that know, a subtle was, hint to me? Was, Should I stop talking about this? But I, you could do a clip of me scoring like hundreds of goals. I mean, yeah. I honestly, I scored so many goals when mm -hmm. I was a kid. I mean, it's a lot easier, funnily enough, when you're playing against <laughs> other school kids than it is when you're an adult. But I think I got 160 something in one season. Um, wow. So that would have been a good That start, would be a good place, place to start. Maybe. Yeah, forget the school, <laughs> school bit. Um, and in between playing at school and obviously your, your academics you worked with your dad as well in Leicester on that fruit and veg stall occasionally occasionally every, every now and then yeah. um, tell me about your dad was he someone you looked up to as a role model for you yeah very much so um, he was a character my dad um, very well known in Leicester through the market stall I mean it's a, the market was like three generations of of my family um, my dad it stopped with me and my brother although my brother did do it for a while and then went into other things um but he was really hard working, um, uh, lived life to the full, um, used to smoke those non-tipped like Churchill kind of cigarettes, like 60, 80 a day, um, succumbed to lung cancer in the end, unsurprisingly. Mm. Um, but he worked hard, played hard, drank hard, um, played cards. Mm. Um, we used to have a card school at my house um, pretty much every Sunday evening which would carry on well into Monday, often to Tuesday morning, <laughs> um, if, if it was a holiday. Uh -huh. And people like Engelbert Humperdinck would come and play on a regular basis. So I know it's bizarre, <laughs> but we used to, uh, he was Engel, known, yeah. known to us as Engel. And do you know what, when you, know, when you think, is my, is my memory playing tricks on me? Is, did that actually really happen? Did yeah. Engelbert Humperdinck <laughs> come to my house every week? Um, and then when Leicester won the cup, the BBC did a thing with him because he's a Leicester fan. And he said, I used to go to his house to play cards. And I thought, yes, <laughs> it's true. I didn't imagine it. I didn't make it up. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah so, he, he, you know, it was hard. He, he, on his days off, he would go fishing and I'd go fishing with him sometimes. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love my dad. Um, he was, you know, old school, quite stoic. Um, um, and my parents split when I was about 20, 21. Um, but I stayed close to them, even though they were apart. Um, but he didn't. He wasn't one of those that talked about his emotions too much. And, and until he got older, uh, well, actually, until he knew he was dying, and it changed. And I used to go up to Leicester, like, or up and down, up and down. And then, for the first time in our lives, we had kind of long and meaningful um, conversations. Wow. Um, you know, even about football. I and mean, we think. I mean, he was. I mean, he always obviously believed in me, but you know, I, I said to him, "How did you, you know?" Did you ever think that I had a chance? Because I never really, I kind of wanted it, but I always thought I'd, I'd, I won't make it. But, mm. And he went, oh, no, I always knew. And I said to him, well, well you could have told me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and then it, he got gradually worse and more ill, um, didn't have long left. And I think the last compassmentous um, conversation we had, I was just about to leave and he went, son, I love you. And I'd never heard him say that. And I just went... I love you too and I ran out got in the lift and I, I went one floor down about seven nurses got in and it was like oh You're poor him crying yeah, yeah, yeah. my eyes out but he was he was he was a good he was a good man of course. Was, I know hard working good course. man and fun big bad Bacardi Barry he was nicknamed yeah, at one point big Bacardi Barry by my sons they named him that <laughs> <laughs> that's a good nickname yeah I just, loved his rum it must be it must be difficult um Obviously, to hear that from him from the first time at that point. In it your wasn't life. difficult. It was wonderful. Really? Yeah. It was. It, I, I knew he loved me, but you know that generation don't. 
don't share their feelings as much as, as perhaps we do now. So is that as your approach to fatherhood differed in that you're perhaps a bit more forthcoming with your emotions yeah than perhaps your dad was yeah much more i think and i think that's just moved that way isn't it uh-huh. anyway yeah but obviously as a father you probably learned a lot from him right and you've tried to yeah you know be as positive a role model for your boys mm-hmm. as he was for you well, it's difficult being a father isn't it because um because there's no real training for it you're just kind of thrown in at the deep end there you go it's obviously harder for a mother but um but being you know being a and, and even even with my boys who are obviously you know they're entitled they're gonna have they're you know they're fairly secure they're gonna be okay um whatever happens hopefully mm-hmm. um but even then it's that balance isn't it between you know making sure that they're secure but not spoil and and it, it's a very difficult balance to find what's right what's wrong what do you what do you give them what do you make them go for themselves and and trying to find that um i've found you know difficult at times but i've kind of worked out what the way i think is 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 fair but you want them to have drive as well so it's it, it's tough for any parent that i think um i mean it's it's a lot better problem to have than if you you know if you're really struggling in life but um but nevertheless there must be a degree of pressure as well you know when your father is so successful both you know as a footballer mm. and also in the media i think about myself in that position you know mm. obviously having something to look up to but also it would manifest itself as pressure to you know to perform mm. and feel like perhaps that you haven't fulfilled your potential mm. when you know that your dad had it and mm. as much as he as much as you do yeah oh i oh, i tell them i'm way better than them at football <coughs> and stuff like that <laughs> just keep them in their place keep it, yeah, okay, no. No, no you're absolutely right um i suppose um it's it's you know, I don't. I don't think it's something. I think they're, you know, quite proud of it as well. Of they, the, the fact that I've, you know, done okay in life. Um, but and I, you know, I don't think any of them have got like that competitive need to do better than me in in their, whatever their field is. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I do genuinely feel they they want to please me and want to do well, not just for them, but but for me and and their mother as well, of course. Mm. So. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, you know, it's not a daily conversation where you, <laughs> I mean, we're all competitive, but yeah. it, it's, it's not in that way, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take it back to sort of your early life. You joined Leicester City as an apprentice. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, um, I, we were all kind of delegated jobs so, and it doesn't happen now. So, um, it's changed. <laughs> yeah, now they just pay them a lot of money at 16. In, in those days I was on. I was on 20 quid a week. No, I'll, I'll tell a lie. I was on 16 pounds a week and I had a separate envelope with a fiver in that I had to give to my mum because mm. I was a local boy and whereas the kids that come in got the food and all that from the digs that mm. they stayed in. So, But my mum always gave it me back. Always gave it, she didn't let me have the fiver. So, um, so being an apprentice was... Um, it was interesting. You were delegated jobs. I My job was... Um, in the first season was to clean up the first team dressing room. In those days, they would train and well, they tra- we used to train at a place called Beaver Drive, which was a couple of miles away. But we would change in the at Filbert Street, mm. uh, or the first team certainly did. Um, and I had the job of keeping the dressing room clean, providing their kits. I mean, it's not like now players get like five sets of kits a week to train in. They mm. get a different a new set every day. In those days, you had to make it last a week. So they used to have these kind of wrought iron hangers um, 
and on a Monday when they they just chucked their stuff out and it was always numbered and you had to sort it out and go in and then put it on these hangers everyone's kit on a different hanger and then you put it in the drying room overnight now you can imagine by Thursday and Friday it's the socks basically walked on their own Ugh. and it it was this it was this and the slips or, or pants as you call them now yeah. um, were disgusting I bet and it was it was kind of I'd, n- I'd never forget that stench of that um, that drying smelling room. it now when I'm going mm, smelling the roses um, <laughs> so this it pretty, was grim it's pretty far removed from the current academy experience what you've just described there isn't it and yeah. I'm, not, I'm not to you know belittle what those lads go through because mm. it is hard it's still hard obviously yeah. it is but it's different it is and it's more of a machine and sometimes the sort of the younger players that go through that process and get spat out don't end up with a contract it can oh. be a very difficult it's tough and obviously that that is the vast majority yeah you know, i mean i my one of my boys was at um, chelsea's academy for a couple of years um tobias and i know i used to look around, i used to go and watch him mm-hmm. and there were hundreds of kids across at different age groups and he used to look around and i think mm, if one or two of them make it uh, and they are the they're the ones that have been cherry picked from right around London and stuff like that. And you you know how difficult it is, really difficult. When you went professional, you obviously had a, a brilliant and extensive career, which we don't need to retread because most people know it. Um, <laughs> if but, they're old enough, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, how did you stay grounded? I mean, you know, take your pick: Barcelona, Everton, Leicester, Spurs. What, what kept you? I think what really helped me was that I wasn't a childhood sensation. So I wasn't like Michael Owen, who's brilliant at 16, or Wayne Rooney, the same, or, or you know, Jude Bellingham now. There's so many players like that. Phil Foden, and mm. there's lots of them. I think what helped me was the fact that mine was a gradual rise. Um, I was a late developer um, in all sorts of ways. I didn't reach puberty till I was 17. I used to hide in the showers and stuff. It's quite embarrassing. Um, and so I was a kind of slow developer. I got into the first team on a regular basis when I was around 20, 21. Um, and then from 21, 22 onwards, I started scoring a lot of goals in the first team. Because um, the first 30 odd games I played on the right wing, because I think they saw something, but they just wanted to get you in the team. They couldn't get me in my position, but yeah, exactly. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, a slow development. And I think that helped me. I mean, I, every level I reached surprised me. I just, you know, I kept thinking this will find me out, this will find me out. But wh- whatever level it was, I, I just managed to keep storing goals, even with England. Um, so much I remember playing um, against Spain, and we were, we, were, I scored the fourth goal and all four goals mm. in that game away from home in the Bernabeu. Running back to halfway line, Brian Robson's with me, and he's, he, and I'm going, oh, Robbo, why, why am I so lucky? And he went. Oh, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Sounds about right. I mean, that's... So, the summer you went to Barcelona. Mm. Golden boot. Mm. Then you you agree you're going to go. You get married. Yep. Honeymoon. Yep. Off to Barcelona. Whatever you do, Ollie, don't get married. And, uh, like, Gary, I'm afraid, I hate to break it to you. Yeah, yesterday. yesterday. I, know. I know, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. It's too late, mate. Well done, Ollie. It's, cheers. I no. appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, but yeah, tell me about that summer. That must that must have been crazy. <sighs> it was it, it, it was it was it was mad. I was going to go back to my dad as well. He was the only person on earth who backed me to be top scorer. I think he got 40, 16 to one. I think he got wow. something which was not a very generous price. But, <laughs> but he, he he won a few quid there. So it was. It was a mad summer. So I, I finished an amazing season at Everton. Um, best team I ever played in. Best club side I ever played in. Um, 
but we didn't win anything. We should have. We should have won the double. We ended up missing out on both just to Liverpool. So it was your worst nightmare. Mm. And then, so from that disappointment of, of missing out in the end to go to the World Cup and, and finish top scorer. Um, and then it was funny because during the, it was just before the World Cup though that Everton first told me about some interest from Barcelona and they think they might accept price. And and then the World Cup, I can't remember exactly why, it went quiet anyway. And then I went to the World Cup and then the, um, I had a conversation with my agent before I went about the move and I went, I, let's not discuss any transfers until the World Cup's over. I don't want anything to cloud my mind. Yeah. Um, and he said, okay, that's fine. Then we went to Mexico and the first two games didn't, didn't go very well. Um, didn't score. And we'd heard nothing. Obviously, there was no, there were no stories then. And then, then I scored a, a hat trick, and then I got another couple against Paraguay. And all of a sudden, I'm top scorer in the World Cup. And in those days, we didn't, obviously 1986, we didn't have mobile phones or anything. So in fact, it was it's so different to how it is now. We we were allowed, I think, one phone call a week from the. Um, you kind of had to make it from the hotel reception in Mexico, and. We were all sitting having dinner and someone came in and said, there's a phone call for, for Mr. Lineker. And I went, crikey, what's that, what? <laughs> so it's my agent and it was John, who's still my agent today. He's been my agent for you know, 45 years. And, and he said, he said, I know you said not to disturb you. He said, and I've kind of wrestled with this. He said, but I think I have to under the circumstances of what they've said. He said, Barcelona have been in touch and they want to sign you and they've agreed with Everton but they need a yes now, otherwise they're not going to sign you. And I said, if they want to sign me now, they'll want to sign me at the end of the World Cup. <laughs> so call their bluff, because I cannot do that now. Yeah. I cannot get involved in that now. Uh -huh. No, we're about to play in the quarterfinal of the World Cup. So, so then that's how the Barcelona thing. So then I come home, we were always due to get married as well. So did the, did the deal in the, the Connaught Hotel. Um, it was quite a, so it was all really sneaky. So we had Terry uh, Terry Venables, who was then manager of Barcelona. We had Howard Kendall, who was then manager of Everton. Um, we had the chairman of Everton. We had the vice president Juan, Juan Gaspar, who came over from Barcelona, and the two or three other people. And we had the meetings, and we got the deal done in an upstairs suite. And I've been kind of hidden behind back doors and all this kind of stuff so the press wouldn't know. And I even I spoke to the, the president who didn't speak a word of English on the phone, which was really bizarre because I didn't speak a word of Spanish at that point. And then then we signed a deal and, and it was all right. And then they said, right, dinner. And they had, they'd got a dinner in the middle of the restaurant with everybody there. And I, it was a bit kind of baffling. So we did the deal, then I got married, then I went on honeymoon and then Instantly, I was straight into training at, at, at Barcelona. And you're fluent in Spanish now? I, I, yeah, I'm fairly, I mean, I'm, I get rusty now and I search for words sometimes. But yes, I'm fluent. And I was very, I used to think in it when my last year there. Did you dream in it? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, That's I did do when I, when I was in, the last, probably the last year, six mm. months, yeah. Um, I'm I right in understanding you commentated a bit, little bit in Spanish. I did co-commentary. Co-commentary. Yeah. yeah, I did a bit co-commentary in, in Spanish, yeah, yeah. Did you want to do that? Did the club put you forward for it? No, no, that or? came separately. It was just, mm. yeah. Even in those days, I was always looking and I, 
you know, going back to writing match reports, if you like, I, I was always interested in the journalistic side. I, you know, my nickname at, with England was given, I think, Gazza and Chris Waddle used to call me Junior Des because I was going Already. Pre- prematurely grey, you see. <laughs> Upright, <laughs> but sure. yeah, because I used to sit with the journalists, I used to sit with the radio people watching how they did their intros and stuff like that. Yeah. Really? Because I, I kind of knew what I You knew what you wanted to do wanted. afterwards. I certainly knew I wanted to go into television and then latterly I started to think, I want to present because no one does that in football. Bob Wilson did it and did it well. Um, but there'd, n- there'd not been a player who played right at the top like I had that had gone into it, whereas cricket had Gower, mm. tennis had Sue Barker. And I used to think, if I could crack the presenting side, of, then that might give me some kind of longevity. Mm-hmm. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You've done the presenting side of things with the BBC. You also have, so that's sort of, the old media side of things, if you like. You've got the new media side of things as well with Goalhanger Productions. Yeah, which is podcast. Well, brilliant. Podcasts, mm. TV production as well. Mm. So you kind of sit across both old and new. Yeah. Was that a strategic choice by you? Are you sort of thinking... Well, it, it came about originally. I mean, I've made lots of documentaries over the years for BBC, which I didn't get anything extra for, but it was... And they were quite satisfying. But... Um, there's a guy called Tony Pastor. I used to used to be a producer at BBC, and then he was kind of head of football of, at, at ITV. Um, and then he went on his own um, with a production company. And then I met, we bumped into each other, and he said, oh, "We used to chat about making programs." He said, "He said, what a, do you fancy going in with a production company? And we'll, you know, I'll start again. We'll fifty-fifty, and, and and we'll go from there." And I went, "I'd love to do that. It'd be really interesting." Um, so that was a, I don't know, probably nine ten years ago now probably mm. um and then from that we did lots of films um and it's been it's a nice little business and we have a lot of fun with it and then and then i did a podcast with danny baker um, um behind closed doors which was a lot of fun really popular and we did it did quite well and we thought there might be something in this podcast thing so um and then we diverted away from sport um we had one called we have ways making you talk with alan murray and and James Holland, um, which is very popular. It's niche, obviously. It's all about Second World War and hundreds of episodes. Um, and then we rest is history, and then the rest is poly- and it uh, and they've become well, they're giants. They I are. mean, they really are. I mean, and the guys are great, and and it's it's become a lot of fun. It's mm-hmm. really really good. Something different. Oh, I'm I'm trying to understand the sort of the new media, old media angle here. Mm. So. so Live TV, well, sorry, live sport on TV is probably one of the only times mm. that a younger audience these days tunes into their television. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
you're probably quite uniquely positioned, to be honest with you, in terms of TV broadcasting to be accessing that audience because the rest of the time it's non-linear, right? It's iPlayer, it's yeah. Netflix. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of the football now and live stuff is going on iPlayer. Mm. I mean, the, the iPlayer numbers for, for the weekend when we did the FA Cup final um, were, were really about 3 million on iPlayer. Really? Watching it live on iPlayer. Okay. So, and, and obviously some of them will be watching yeah, it later. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's it, 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 it's an interest in the way it shifted. So, I mean, it means TV audiences are, were always judged on people who, you know, the, the buttons on the back of people's TV sets and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, so, but now there's, the, I think it's easier probably to get more accurate data from the the iPlayer and things like that. So oh. it, it has shifted. And I, I was talking the other day, when was the last time you used, certainly as a young person, when was the last time you actually went, right, let's see what's on telly? And you go, scroll down, BBC One, BBC yeah, Two, yeah, ITV, yeah. Channel Four, but just don't do that anymore, do no, you? You pick and choose. The big, I think, you know, certainly for terrestrial TV, the big moments now are definitely sport. Mm. Definitely, we get the biggest numbers by a mile. Um, reality TV shows that you know youngsters will watch as well. Maybe big news events. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 quite interesting the way it's it's changed. And so you've got to kind of try and shift with it a little bit. I always thought I was a bit of a freak for sort of re rewatching or you know, revisiting a, a sporting match that already happened and you already knew the score mm. that I'd want to go and just yeah. see how the game went. Mm. During the World Cup, I mean, we don't have to go too far in sort of audience habits and stuff, but was it a similar story? Was a lot of iPlayer viewing? Mm. Really than, was, yeah. Really? You could, we, I think that's the first time we've gone, God, this is a real shift. Yeah. Because don't forget, you know, in the when I perhaps played in the World Cup, and I think Italia 90 was probably the first time that, you know, you saw no cars on the streets and stuff. People had to get home to watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you don't now. You can watch it on your phone even, on mm. your iPad or whatever, wherever you are, even when you're at work. So it, it, it's definitely, definitely changed. How much of what you're doing then, looking at the podcasting space, mm. is sort of not a, a bet, but a decision to think audiences are changing. I still want to be a part of this media mm. landscape, whether it's as a business yep. owner, whether it's as a presenter, mm. and that's where I think it's going. Is that kind yeah. of... Well, particularly in the production side of things, because what, what we've, we've got like kind of two wings to our, our business. And... Um, in, on the production side, in, in terms of TV shows, you, you have you have an idea, then you have to try and pitch it and get it commissioned. So you go around, and then you've got to kind of conjure up a budget from somewhere, and then try and make it. In a podcast, you just go, "Fuck it, we'll just go. do it." Exactly. Yeah, we'll just do it. And you, you, there's no real, you know, to make it the costs are not you know huge. You need you, know, you need good people. It's all about people. Um, so it's it, it's very different, you know. Thankfully, we've got some of the, the top few. It's just your <laughs> podcast up there, isn't it? I think not just us. There are there are others that don't don't warrant a mention. We won't yeah. mention them. We but won't it's mention fine. Them. I'm sure your one is, is right <laughs> up. We're doing okay. Yeah, we're I doing, know you are. We're not, not quite up there yet, Gary. Why do you think I'm on it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the point, right? Particularly with the rest is politics. You know, mm. that is Alistair and Rory. Yep. Loads of people listening, and that's a lot of influence within British society. Yeah, it is, and, and, and it's you know, good, and they're good, you know, they... We talk, know. we talk about, I don't know, I don't want to compare you to Rupert Murdoch, because that's unfair, <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day... I, I look the same. <laughs> fuck, <laughs> that's rough, that's rough. Um, but it's a, lot, it's a lot of influence, you know, if we're talking hundreds of thousands of people listening to these two people talking about mm. politics, and that's, that's a lot of influence. I know, obviously, you're not on the show, or you did a leading interview with them, didn't you? But, you know, mm. it's them presenting it, but still, you're kind of... You're taking a position, really, within the British political landscape. Mm. 
you know, in the same way when you tweet about issues that it wasn't, it wasn't that wasn't necessarily our plan. But you're absolutely right in a way. I suppose we, I think we do influence things. They, they do anyway. Definitely. Those two, um, and I think we've been through a, a period of this this tribal kind of diverse thing. You've got you know extremes on both sides shouting loud and stuff. Mm. And I think if we've done something, and I hope it's important, I think and Rory and Alistair is that this whole thing about agreeing disagreeably and all that kind of thing. But he's actually, I think they're appealing to what I think most of us are. I think most of us are kind of somewhere in the middle, either to the right or to the left. Mm. And it's fine. And um, But I think what we've had is it's the ones that shout the loudest, we notice the most. So we think everyone, anyone on the right is like extreme right and hates everybody on the left. And everybody extreme left hates everybody on the other side. So I think... I think if if we do one thing, I, or I hope um, we do, it wasn't the plan at all. Is is to actually bring some decency back, and stop the tribal nonsense, and I I think it's I think that's important. Mm. And um, the boys are great, and I think the important thing with podcasts is the chemistry between the the two, and it's the same with the rest of this history boys. Yeah, Tom Holland, Dominic Sandbrook, um, who are so excellent, um, and and I think people have a connection with the people um and and if we bring things back to the center and 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 some kind of good you know nice niceness Mm -hmm. niceness rather than hatred and and abuse would be a good really good thing yeah so i think okay there's there's a lot there's a lot i want to talk about here Mm. so i totally agree with you especially at Mm. the format where it's two people having a conversation there's so much more room for nuance it's Mm. a lot more subtle you do of course have a very very popular twitter account and I wonder whether there's a difference between... Popular to some. <laughs> less popular to others. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, but, you know, there's less room for nuance on Twitter, isn't there? And yeah. I and guess I, that probably... I, I, I'm a bit worried about Twitter now. It's gone kind of... Go on. It's drifted lately. Um, I don't know why. Um, but... Ooh, yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> what could have happened? Well, I, I think what's happened now, there was a time when I, I was on... And I'm talking about personal here, yeah. not generally on Twitter and whether it's good or bad. Um, for many it might be good but before musk um before the whole blue tick paying thing um which i did pay for i paid it for ages ago because you get edit button which is really useful (laughs) Uh, it only works for 30 minutes but i i I used to hate it when i make like a spelling mistake or something or um something like that so um so i actually bought it and then it became shameful to have bought one but (laughs) but the problem now is i don't know about you but it used to get a uh, two columns, didn't you, that you could read. The one with everybody on it, yep. which was like a cesspit mm-hmm. um, and ruined by nasty people, ruining it for all good people. Yep. Um, and then you get a thing which I read, which was other blue tick follow- people and people that I you followed. followed yep. um, whereas now that the, that blue tick thing, everyone's got one. Mm. And so I, I can't even look at that now you because you will have that small percentage of people that absolute troll you and hate you mm. and it's kind of a wash with that and it ruins it for all the nice people and the good people because i it's nice to engage with people mm. but if you know but they so they spoil it for everyone and i think and twitter's gone down that now and it's kind of it's probably for the best maybe for a reason but i backed <laughs> off a little bit yeah not not for political reasons or anything like that but just because it's it's just become not as not as pleasant a place as it 
I mean, it's never been wholly pleasant, but it's. It, I think it's worse. But basically, there's there's a lack of meaningful discourse in a way that before you'd be able to have conversations yeah, with exactly. people. You could tweet something, and go back. Which I don't do now. You can't do can't it. Can't do it now. No, not really. Do you think that was kind of reflected in the whole? We don't need to retread it, but the whole mm. palaver recently with the BBC. Mm. Do you think there was a bit of lost meaning in what you were saying? And yeah, didn't have absolutely. And, was, and chat to yeah, people about it. And that it. was probably a prime example of it, where I, I wouldn't have seen that um, reply that I got yeah. under the old Twitter. So I wouldn't have been kind of. I wasn't angered, but I was just. You know, I did a. I, I did a repost that. I wish I hadn't done only because of the Ferrari that followed. I, mm. I don't take a word back what I say. I think I was, I think I was factually correct, and that, and which is you know why I stood my ground. I don't think it was like a necessarily opinion thing. Mm. I think it was factual. So, um, but yes, I probably wouldn't have seen that otherwise, and life would have been a bit calmer. Um, it was a, <laughs> it was a surreal, surreal few days. I kept thinking, this is really about not very much at all. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, it was. I remember yeah. it was massive. I mean, you had reporters camped outside your house, right? You, six days. You got six days. You morning till night. Doorstepped walking yeah. Filbert, I think. I did walk in Filbert. Um, I remember on the Friday I had a, a I, when it really kind of all oh, shit hit the fan, yeah, as it so to speak. Um, I remember thinking I've, I was going to have lunch in town with um, a couple of friends. And I thought, Craig, I'm going to get it. I don't want them all following me to the restaurant. But I always get the train anyway. But I'm thinking, oh, they'll come and I'll be on the bloody train. How embarrassing <laughs> will that be? So I, uh, it's a kind of about a f six minute walk to the station from mine. And I always get the train in, so, as I did today. Mm. And, and I normally leave about seven or eight minutes before the train's due. Check it out. So on this occasion, <laughs> I thought, right. I'll leave it four minutes before the train goes and run. So, so I came out the door and it was like, <laughs> and all over. They're coming out with Mike. Do you want to say anything? Do you want really sorry, guys. I'm really late for my train. I've got to run. <laughs> so, so I go running right. Wow, it was like it was like. <laughs> Like a scene from Benny Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, do do And they're all chasing me. They're chasing me with microphones and cameras. And you they, used to do a pretty fast 100 meter, I think, well, 10 and I, a half I seconds. Well, I did, but I am, I'm fairly ancient now. So anyway, so I'm running around, I'm getting, and I'm moving away from them. And this guy, he's, he's obviously the reporter who's been given the microphone, the big grey furry thing. So he's chasing me with it. Gary, Gary said, he said, you're too fast for us. I said, you're half my age. Man, <laughs> sort yourself out. Fucking catch up, pal. So, and eventually, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running, and I get to the station. I've seen them off. They've given up. And I, I remember I got, I got on the platform. I was like, <laughs> I was going to keel over. I was sweating buckets on the train. Um, but I, I, I made my lunch, and um, they didn't, um, they didn't disrupt it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good to hear. Good to hear. Let's go. Let's go back to what we were talking about. Um, finding that common ground and having nice, um, calm conversations. That that mm. that need for discourse. Yeah. Do you think um, that's something unique to the the podcast? That's why it's been so popular. Mm. Do you think there's something broader in sort of the population that people want mm. to be able to have these conversations mm. without? Let's say the tribalism you tr yeah, typically associate with Twitter. I think that's or... definitely one of the things. I, mm. I think that is that you know the, the the good natured aspect to it, but I think it's also incredibly informative. I mean, these two guys have been around everybody between yeah. them. I mean, Alistair obviously was you know, Blair's comms for for twelve years. Um, he's a big personality. 
Um, he's met everybody in politics. Um, Rory's kind of been there, ran for ran to be prime minister, uh, ran to lead the Tory party, I should say. Yeah. Um, ran to be Lord Mayor. He's met everyone. He's been close up with Boris Johnson and Gove and all these characters that we we've had to endure over the last few years and um so you know that they, they just know everybody and i think it's a mixture of i mean i i sometimes feel well i i'm fairly thick anyway but i sometimes feel i <laughs> i mean they, their knowledge of worldwide events and politics is but it is their field mm. so you expect them to be i mean i if if i had a similar conversation about football then i'd and and i i do on many occasions but i think it's it's their knowledge the people they know, their contacts, and and the way the way they the way I think the way they get on together, even though obviously there are differences, but mm. not that many differences. Because it's going back to that thing. Rory's a little bit to the right of the centre, and, and and Alistair's definitely to the left of the mm. centre. Um, so, I, it's it's if you'd have told me that um, I, I, well, it's only been going just over it. Well, it's about. 15 months now mm. I mean, if you'd have told me 16 months ago that that this is a podcast that will be super successful that would um would sell out big venues like the albert hall in 20 minutes for five thousand people watching two middle-aged white blokes talk about politics <laughs> i said you're dads. completely mad yeah 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 <laughs> but yeah it's been it's been a surprise one thing they do agree on obviously is boris johnson and unfortunately we lost him this weekend he stood down as an mp uh, a great yeah poor one out sad day sad, sad day um i imagine they were probably your group chat yeah. with them probably was quite spicy um no 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 the, the, really the, the, uh, well, not spicy. It was, we need an emergency pod. <laughs> oh, right. Fine. Where are you? <laughs> oh, Rory's just flying into <laughs> Amman. Yeah. Oh, okay. We'll have to wait to, to half an hour. And uh -huh. then he's springing back to his house. So it was more about trying to organise that than, than um, yeah. Than, you, no, I don't get involved in spicy chat on group chat. No, so no, not obviously. at all. Not at all, obviously. <laughs> um, will, will you will you miss our dearly departed former prime minister? Um, I, I I sense he won't go far. <laughs> <laughs> I sense I sense he will remain within us for yeah, quite some time. I think so. He'll I be back so in too. some way, shape, or form. <laughs> um, let's talk. Let's move on then and, and talk a little bit more about the BBC because um, obviously we were just talking mm. about it. Right, this big Ferrari around it. I don't want, like I said, I don't no. want us to go into that, but to talk about. Perhaps changes that mm. can happen at the BBC, mm -hmm. so that perhaps that situation doesn't happen again. Mm. Do you think the it, political involvement that perhaps Boris mm. Johnson was involved in with selecting, let's say, Richard Sharp, etc., yeah. that whole thing? Do you think that needs to, that needs to go? That should I, change. I think that should. Have, that should I, I think that the fact that the government of the day, now whether that's Labour or Conservative yeah. or any other party that may emerge, um, is is by the by. I just don't. It doesn't seem right if you're so. If you're so kind of driven by trying to find impartiality, then you've got to start from the top. Um, so yes, I agree. I, I've, I've said that publicly many times that I, I don't think that's right, and that's nothing against Richard Sharp. I, I don't know him. I've met him briefly for a few seconds. Mm. Um, so I think I think that's important, but it's it's very difficult, and I, it's very difficult for the BBC because. <laughs> The impartiality thing is 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 so tough to to get right because you've you know if most people if they're on the right they are absolutely convinced the BBC is has a left wing bias. The people on the left are absolutely convinced 
that the BBC has a right wing bias. So you're constantly fighting that. Um, so it is very difficult. Um, my personal view is, is that it, it was okay as it was with you know proper staffers, people on news and current affairs, um, and 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 the rest of us have to try and be sensible mm. um, uh, without being you know having these strict guidelines that were brought in after I'd signed my contract. Um, so the you know the goalposts were shifted halfway through that it suddenly became applicable to everyone, and I you know I tried. I, I try my best. I never tell. I never tell anyone who I vote for. I'm mm. never going to tell anyone what to do. Um, so I noticed you wouldn't be drawn on that Boris Johnson question I just asked you as well. You can tell. Well, there you go. You see, I, try, I do my very best <laughs> at all times. What, what do you see as the role though for the BBC? Let's say it's mm. a broader conversation about England, Britain, mm. kind of. I think the BBC needs to be more proud of itself. Yeah, and needs to shout out a little bit more about what, the, how good it is. And it, it, it is, you know, in difficult times, yeah. in difficult times, it's still an incredible um, institution. It's got, you know, it's got its faults and, it, and it's, 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 it's a strange place in many ways. And it's, and it's very difficult sometimes, you know, it's become more difficult to work for. You know, you, we, get a pub, we get our salaries published now, which I, you know, and I'm one of those that has been dead open about my salaries with, uh, you know, so it's, you know, I don't do any tricky means to try and pay less tax or anything like that. So, you know, know. so, you know, I don't have it going via a production company. So I'm at the top of it and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there'll be one or two people that earn more, but, um, so I get battered every July and it's uh-huh. now June and it's coming. Oh, again. we're gearing up for it. It's yeah. It's coming again. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm so used to it now. It's the same, but, mm-hmm. um, but I think what we what we should do is is remind you know people of of how good at we do sport, how good we do news, of how good we do drama, of how good do we do so many different different things, and how good value it is mm. um, the license fee. You know, it's like the price of a cup of coffee a week, um, and I think there's a lot of good in there. And I think sometimes rather than be defensive all the time, it's actually go out on the attack yeah, and, yeah. and and sell it for what it is. It's like, it's a fantastic product. Let's talk. Well, can we delve a bit more into um, the phrase you use there? Difficult times. Mm-hmm. Are you talking in general? Are you talking about something specific right now in Britain? What, what, what did you mean by that? Well, I think I think it's probably the shift with social media, right? That 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 perhaps there's so many more opinions are heard, and and particularly those that you know are on either side, either wh- wherever it is. It goes back to that point about people that you know, the most extreme shout the loudest. So so I think the BBC is trying to, has to try and come to terms with that. And I think that's, you know, it's one of one of the downsides of social media. I think there's a lot of upsides, but um, I think, you know, you could say it gives lots of people, ordinary people, a voice. So mm. you could say it's a, a, a thing of, of, of good, but I think it's it does make it more difficult for a kind of national broadcaster. I guess on the one hand, you can um, say positive things or make statements about climate change or refugees mm. and then on mm. the other hand it might be Richard Madeley mm. shouting at you in an interview going mm. viral and this, <laughs> this kind of uh, that was very odd yeah it yeah. was it uh, was a bit partridge wasn't it a little it bit a, bit a little bit was that at the time no that was more recently wasn't it that, that happened uh, yeah it was just a couple of weeks ago three weeks ago weird um, mm. can we talk a little bit about the World Cup if that's alright absolutely um, football sticking yeah, to football back to, yeah sorry we'll stick to football we've done far too much <laughs> politics now we have to get back to football um, how how was it working in Qatar? What was what was the what were the conditions? I know there was a lot yeah. of talk beforehand about 
the politics well, it, it of was, it. Yeah, it was it was as I expected really. It was um, it was a different, and there were pros and cons. You didn't quite get the you know that atmosphere that you would normally get at a World Cup because there weren't the, as many visiting fans, particularly from Europe. Although there was a different kind, different kind of fans were coming from different areas of the world. Um, like a lot of fans came from North Africa, um, which which was good. You even had you know a lot of Asian supporters coming. Um, so it was, but it was a, a different kind of atmosphere. Probably the fact that it, there was there were no alcohol around, but, um, <laughs> bar. Um, so that probably calmed things down, which is not necessarily a bad thing either. Mm. So there, it was very, it felt very safe. Um, it was. It did feel a little bit different in in the atmosphere sense, but at the same time, it was it was pretty well organised. Although it was very controlling, you know, mm. cues around things and stuff was, um, which was was different. Um, but the the real positive from a personal and selfish point of view was that normally when we go to a World Cup, we're parked up in some important place in that country's capital like in red square we were overlooking in moscow um table mountain in south africa um the beach in rio which is mm. um which was bearable uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we hardly got to see a game yeah we'd watch it on the telly like everybody else would watch and we're trying to do the analysis and stuff off there mm. whereas in qatar because it's so small the furthest journey to any game was 40 minutes so we did every single match in the stadium and watching the game which is so much better yeah. for us and that was that was a real plus um so that you know the pluses and minuses and some people had really good experiences there and I, I i know perhaps you know some found it more difficult than others perhaps you know because of the kind of homophobia that, that is kind of coursing through their mm. their veins you felt that you felt the need as well at the beginning I think it was literally the first broadcast wasn't it you guys did a piece about migrant rights about LGBT yeah. rights you, you yeah. focused on all of it and I think that was fairly extraordinary really for sort of a, a World Cup broadcast I mean unless yeah. you could think of a I think, example I think there was a reason really because I think that that made this one different was not necessarily the human rights issues because you know every World Cup that we do has issues in some ways so you know we went we went to Moscow a few years after they'd in, you know, they'd already invaded before. Mm. Um, we we were in Rio and there were massive demonstrations everywhere about the fact they shouldn't be spending fortunes on building stadiums when when they've got social problems. Um, in the safety in South Africa was was a big thing, um, and in talked about before. So there's always been kind of something. Um, but I think what made this one different was the fact, the way they got the World Cup, that it was it was corrupt, and we know that the evidence is is all there. And that, and I was in the room when it was given to Qatar. And it wasn't about the fact that England didn't get it because we weren't up for that World Cup anyway. Yeah. It was the one in, with Russia that we lost to. But it was just Qatar in the summer. It's fifty, forty, fifty degrees. You can't play football, yeah. and it was like. You just, I remember I felt like I needed a shower when I got out. It was that bad. But um, so it was more that. And then the other things within that, you know, the, the, the workers, the migrant workers and the way they were treated and the lives that were lost, they were kind of just factual things. They were just factual things like read out mm. the list. But I think the fundamental thing was that 
why we did that as an opening and it you know obviously this was decided by a lot of people um but we wanted to make it basically telling people the facts yeah and we got you know heavyweights involved you know you know from from bbc news department as well to make sure that it was it was it was right um we should have done it in russia to be honest um in hindsight mm. probably after you know what they'd done and now you know if it had been after ukraine which was, you know, they did it in 2014 first. But um, so, yeah, we probably should have done it then. That's the one I, criticism I would gladly accept. Without get, I don't want to go too far into the yeah. BBC's editorial processes, but just quickly, how much input do you personally have on a decision like that? You know, obviously you're the person reading well, the, the words. Um, yeah. yeah, so obviously I very much, oh yeah, 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 strong part. Okay. Um, we've spoken a lot about father-son relationships and... Uh, being and you being a role model, your father being a role model. I'd like to ask you, getting towards the end of the interview now, to sort of make a value judgment about whether you think you've been a good role model over the course of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I've never set out to be a role model. Yeah. Um, I, Regardless, I think you probably are. Well, I think we are, and footballers are, and they, they, they don't. You know, you don't ask for that. You go into football because you love playing football. You don't go into football for money. You don't go in football for. Um, to be a role model, um, you don't go into football to be famous. You go into football because you love playing football, um, and that was certainly the case with me. Obviously, you know you branch out as a human being um, as you progress. I, I would like to think I think it's inevitable that you do become a role model if you become a, a big football star. Um, I've been really proud of the, the the young footballers and the way they've used their platforms for good. I hope I've been a good role model. Some people that that agree with my stance on on things will think I'm a good role model. People who disagree with my stance on things will think I'm an awful role model. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't really matter what I think. <laughs> um, what's the f final question then? What what's the difference between the public Gary Lineker and the private Gary Lineker? Not much. What you see is what you get. Yeah, I think what you see is what you get. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, and I think that's what happens if you if you're in the public eye for a long time, particularly on television. Um, you can kind of blag it for a while, who, who, whatever you are, but in the end, your personality will come out. People will uh, find out. People will find out, and I think um, whatever they found out, <laughs> they'll probably. I think that's what they'll get when they. Yeah. Would you do it again? on tv and you know become the sort of media yeah, man i love my i love my life i enjoy i enjoy fame people are lovely mm. you know you can it's so easy to be distracted by the tiny percentage on on twitter it really is where in, in the real world it's not like that at all every i mean i think i've had only two instances in my entire life where people have had a pop verbal pop one old lady elbowed me in the back <laughs> She was on her way to a Tommy Robinson rally. Really? Yes. Okay, nice. An old lady, she gave me, whoa, lady car. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. And then I had another one where I was going shopping, my groceries, and some bloke shouted out of the road, you hate Britain. You hate Britain, don't you? Okay. No, I really love Britain. But anyway, so that, that, there are only two examples I can think of in my oh. entire life. Um, and yet you open Twitter and it's... Well, it's not. It's it, it's just. It's the same. It's the same lot yeah, every yeah, time. Yeah, it's yeah. the same people. So it's not. But in in the street, it's amazing. It's really people are lovely, mm. and I I enjoy that. I don't I don't mind admitting it. Gary Lineker, thank you so much for taking Absolutely. the time. Pleasure, really Pleasure. If you enjoyed that conversation, please leave us a review. 
or tweet us at joe underscore co underscore uk. Join us next Thursday for an unfiltered conversation with Fern Brady. And in the meantime, why not head over to our YouTube channel for the video version of this podcast. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.